When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Kyle Dabro. And Kev, how are we feeling, my guy? NFL Draft is here. And you got to talk about what happened in this draft, bro. What happened with that pick? I don't want to talk about it. It's good to see you, though, my guy. It's, It's good to see you. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I almost didn't make it. Kev, all your fears have come true. We've talked about this for months. If you guys haven't caught on to the fact, this is something that we'll talk about, obviously, uh, pretty soon in the episode. Anthony Richardson, one of the best prospects that we've ever seen from an athletic perspective from the quarterback position on his way to Indianapolis as we speak. And uh, I know Kev's going to have plenty to say about that. So... Kev, if you allow me, I will go over the agenda. We've got a lot to get to today. Obviously, the draft's at the top of the list. We got the NBA playoffs still going on. We got the NHL hockey playoffs going on. I mean, there's a lot to go over. And um, don't be surprised, you guys, if you guys are watching this, if you see some random faces from Kevin, it's probably more likely to do with some of these GMs that are making some, in his eyes, some horrendous picks. So, just to give you guys a heads up, if you guys are listening, it's too bad you guys aren't going to be able to see the facial reactions from Kev because Kev's going to have plenty of those throughout the night. Kev, what do you got? The Vikings just took a receiver. They're probably trying to fill the void of Adam Thielen. You had one of the worst offensive lines in football. I don't make these decisions, Kev. I, I don't make these decisions. I don't get it. There's a, there's a lot going on. It, do you want to go through like the list of the, just the picks that have really kind of thrown you off so far, or you want? I mean, to save we that? can we talk about the draft, but we, we definitely have obviously, like you said, we have an agenda to discuss. The Giants just traded their pick or traded up for a pick. Okay, so they have back to backs now. But proceed with the agenda, please. Well, you know, like I said, first things first, we'll go over the NFL draft. I know Kev's got a lot to say about Anthony Richardson going to the Indianapolis Colts at number four in the first round of the 2023 draft. Uh, the number one pick uh, was, was pretty straightforward. Uh, Bryce Young was selected as the number one pick. He's going to the Carolina Panthers. The Texans make a, a trade with the Arizona, Arizona Cardinals to go back-to-back at the number two and number three pick in the first round, picking up C.J. Stroud, which I know Kev was kind of keeping his fingers, uh, was kind of putting his fingers together, hoping that it would happen. Uh, that CJ would go to the Colts didn't happen. And then Will Anderson 
uh, went to Houston as well with that third pick. So obviously the draft is still going on currently. We're kind of reaching the end of the first round. Um, and then they'll pretty much call it a night after that. But uh, we'll go over the draft first. Uh, and then after that, we'll pretty much go over some of the other football-related news outside of the draft. Uh, Aaron Rodgers was officially traded to the Jets a couple of days ago, so he will be the starting quarterback for the Jets going into next season. Lamar Jackson signs a massive contract with the Baltimore Ravens, a five-year, $260 million deal. Kev, what was it? $185 million? Million guaranteed. I got the bag. So all the off-season drama, if you want to, Characterize it that way between Lamar and Baltimore is now settled with. He is going to be their starting quarterback of the future in Baltimore. And then after that, we'll kick it to the NBA playoffs. Uh, first round is still going strong. I think as of right now, I think as for the games that are going on currently, I think Boston's about to eliminate the Atlanta Hawks in game six. Because we were talking about that before we started recording. They they were up late in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they just, was, they just finished the one final. All right, so obviously the Celtics advanced to the second round. Six games was probably something that we weren't expecting, but nonetheless, they still advance. Uh, but first things first, you know, we, we got to talk about Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler single-handedly put the team on his back with Miami and carried them to a five-game uh, series win over the number one-seeded Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, we'll talk about Jimmy's effectiveness in the playoffs. Playoff Jimmy is here, and he lived up to expectations. Uh, we'll also talk about some of the comments that Giannis made post game after the Bucks were eliminated, mostly having to do with one of the reporters' questions and saying whether or not that this season was a failure for the Bucks as a whole. Uh, we'll dive into those comments a little bit later. Obviously, we'll talk about the Knicks defeating the, the Cleveland Cavaliers in five games. It was really quite a performance from the Knicks. Uh, they really gave the Cavs all that it can handle, and then. More some after that. Uh, the Cavs move on. Not, not the Cavs. The Knicks move on to the second round of the playoffs where they will play the Miami Heat. Uh, that will be one of the second round matchups. And then now with Boston having beaten the Hawks, the Celtics will play the 76ers in the second round of the playoffs. So we still got some Western Conference series playing out. Golden State did beat the Warriors. Uh, Golden State beat the Kings in game five in Sacramento. So that series is still going on. Golden State's got a 3-2 series lead. Game 6 takes place in San Francisco at the Chase Center. So, overall, that series could still go 7 games because we know that the Kings can probably pull out something and, and try to win Game 6 to force a Game 7. And then, uh, to wrap up the NBA portion, uh, the Lakers lost to the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies survived to see another day in Game 5. Game six will take place back in LA where the Lakers have a chance to end the series and defeat the number two seeded Memphis Grizzlies or the Grizzlies could face a game seven with game seven taking place in Memphis. And then after that, we'll pretty much just wrap it up with uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Tampa Bay Lightning lit to see another day against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Game six will be back in Tampa and pretty much that's how we have this laid out for you guys. So without further ado, Obviously, we'll start with the NFL draft. Like I said at the top, uh, CJ Stroud goes number one. Houston has back-to-back -back picks. And, Bryce. Bryce. Oh, excuse me. Th thank you. Thank you. Bryce goes to the Carolina Panthers at number one. Houston has back-to-back -back picks at number two and number three. At number two, they selected CJ Stroud. And at number three, they selected Will Anderson. At number four, 
This is probably the most infamous pick that Kev has had to experience as a Colt fan. Anthony Richardson, formerly of the University of Florida, is going to Indianapolis. And I know that Kev's going to have plenty to say. What did I say? I said go Gators. Oh, yeah. I thought I, I thought I said like another team name by accident. But um, this is basically where we're going to go with this, you guys. We're going to talk a little bit about Anthony Richardson going to the Colts. I know Kev's got a lot to say about this. So... Kev, take your time on this one. I know you have plenty to say. Kev, I gotta gotta ask you, what do you think of Anthony Richardson going to the Indianapolis Colts when he was selected as the number four pick in the NFL draft? I was at the bar down the street with Isabel, having a burger, having a drink. I I genuinely, when I tell you, I forgot the draft was going on until I pulled up to the bar, like I was able to walk, and I was like, oh. Perfect. I'm going to grab a drink. I'm going to be able to see what the Colts are going to do. In my mind, I'm thinking it's Will Levis the whole way. I'm thinking Stroud might even fall because of how he um, you know, applied on the aptitude test or the, the mental test or the IQ test, whatever the hell he took. I'm like, okay, we'll see what happens. I tell Isabel right as we're, we're on the clock, I said, for the love of God, please don't let it be him because Anthony Richardson was on the screen. There was a Colts fan to my right shoulder. And he was like, I haven't seen the Colts in a few years because we suck. I said, to be honest, I don't blame you. I almost quit the fandom last season. And him and I were chopping it up a little bit. Lady to my left, Cleveland Browns fan, well, talking about you know their picks and all that stuff. Very knowledgeable woman, by the way. There was a drunk guy next to her talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he was just a waste of time. Anyway, everybody knew that obviously I was a Colt fan at this time. Pretty much the entire bar was aware that I did not want Anthony Richardson. And of course, that is what happens to the point where I take off my hat. I proceed to walk and leave the bar for five minutes to where I like walk away, throw my hat on the floor. The, the bar proceeds to laugh. Isabel's laughing. And I'm just like in disbelief that this happened. I'm just like, great. This is, this is, this is just karma for me wanting to quit. This, that's how I took it. I was like, for me wanting to give up on the team, they took the guy I didn't want. I understand Anthony Richardson's pros. I understand his athleticism. I understand his speed. I understand his strength, his height, his weight, all of the physical capabilities of what it is he brings to the table. Now, I, I counter that with his accuracy and his decision-making. And then you go and you look at what Indianapolis has available to support him. It's Michael Pittman Jr. and Jonathan Taylor. Because our offensive line went from top three to one of the worst in the league last season. Obviously, Jonathan Taylor was hurt last season. Obviously, we are with a new head coach, a rookie head coach, mind you. Our receiving core has not improved. We just have Michael Pittman. I know we drafted Alec Pierce last year, but I, he's got to show me a lot more before I definitively make a, okay, we, have, we at least have two solid receivers. Our defense isn't getting any younger. And obviously, I don't trust ownership. I don't trust our GM to build around him because obviously at this point, we've had multiple opportunities to draft receivers, sign receivers, and we haven't done that. How do you draft a quarterback that is inaccurate? How do you draft a quarterback that knowing going into his first NFL season, he is going to be a three to four year project? How do you draft a mobile quarterback with a bad offensive line? How do you draft a mobile quarterback with bad accuracy and no receivers? I'm not sitting here going to say that CJ Stroud would have made our offense that much better. But the one thing I don't have to worry about with CJ is his accuracy. He was probably the most accurate quarterback in this draft. He also had some mobility to him. He wasn't and Anthony Richardson, but he wasn't a pure pocket quarterback. He showed that in the college football playoffs. 
I want to understand in their mind, in 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 Chris Ballard and Jim Irsay and our new head coach Shane Steichen, what do you see that is going to immediately make the Colts a winning franchise? Arm strength, he could sling it 60, 70 yards. Is he going to miss by 15 feet? Probably, but he's got the arm talent. That's probably what they see. He's got the mobility. We haven't had a mobile quarterback in our entire existence. Other than Andrew Luck, but I mean, look what happened to him. He ended up getting hurt and retiring early. So once again, we're repeating the same formula, minus the fact that Andrew Luck had vision, decision-making, and accuracy. But he had the athleticism, he had the arm strength, and he had that that wow-it factor of like making an immediate impact. I think the combine over overhyped Anthony Richardson's prospect. I think that his interviews, how he carries himself, that catapulted it that much higher. And all these outlying circumstances that have nothing to do with football made him appear to be one of the best options in the draft. I'm not saying that Will Levis was that much better. I'm not sitting here and saying that he is better than Anthony Richardson. From what I saw with him at Kentucky two seasons ago, because last year he played injured, I thought that that was better than Anthony Richardson's two seasons at Florida. I watched Anthony Richardson live. I was there when he beat Utah. I also watched every Gator game this season to know that he is absolutely horrendous. And I have numbers. <laughs> he had a 53% completion percentage. That's horrendous. He didn't throw a passing touchdown for the first two, three weeks of the season. He had, I think, the least amount of passing touchdowns into the fifth, sixth week of the season, which was dead last at one point in college football, in, in the country. He had nine interceptions. And he also goes out and he has, where is it? Of course, I'm not going to see the fumbles. Oh, and he had, a, he had a number of fumbles as well, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what do you provide me here? What do you provide the Colts in this instance? Again, athleticism, that's great. But are you going to be able to move the chains on third and eight, third and nine without your legs? What happens to third and long, second and long? What happens when we're down? Are you going to force the ball downfield to our non-existent wide receiver? I don't understand. Anthony Richardson is not what the Colts needed. We needed a win-now quarterback. And I know that that went out of the window with the first two quarterbacks that left early, which was Young and Stroud. But I would have preferred Will Levis to take what he had because he already worked with less at Kentucky. Other than well, Wendell Robinson that he had uh, two seasons ago, the guy that the, the Giants drafted, he didn't have much. I'm not saying that Anthony Richardson did, but I, I personally can't comprehend on what planet this makes sense. As a Colts fan, as a football fan, to what sense the Colts drafting a mobile quarterback that needs a lot of work, that can't throw the ball 10 yards straight down the field and makes de de horrific decisions? I don't know. But again, I'm not a professional GM. I'm not a scout. I'm just a fan. And from what I can tell... This was not a smart decision, and this is going to be something that we are immediately going to regret. Kev, I have to give you props on this one. I thought you were going to be a lot more fiery. I thought you were going to be... 11. I already had my meltdown at the bar. And you've already discussed that in detail. You don't have to go into more detail after that. But, you know, obviously, we had been talking about this about the possibility of Anthony Richardson going to the Colts over the last couple of years. And is it last safe to say years months years? Thank you. Months. 
God, I don't know what's going on with me and just the words that I'm using tonight. I'm a little bit off on that. But over the last couple of months, do you think that there is a potential that the Colts could be able to make this work over the next, like you said, three to four years, knowing that he is going to be a project that they're going to have to work with over the next no. couple of seasons? Okay, just because of the, the fact that... We're not getting bad. younger. Our win-now window is shrinking dramatically. Darius Leonard is injury-prone and getting older. Quentin Nelson had his worst year of his career last season. He's getting He's not getting any younger. Braden Smith, Ryan Kelly, all of the star pieces, DeForest Buckner, the big pieces that make our team what it is, the impactful players. Bobby Okereke left last year. Kari Willis retired. Rocky Sin was traded. Uh, Stephon Gilmore was traded. All of our big pieces are either not available or just, again, getting older. You go fast forward three, four seasons down the road just to have somebody be the middle of the pack. You have to worry about now in Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence is hitting his stride. What happens if uh, Bryce Young pans out, right? Or excuse me, not Bryce Young. What happens if C.J. Stroud pans out in Houston? In Tennessee, I'm not saying that they're going to do anything. They still have Derrick Henry as of right this very moment. That is somebody that kills us every single season. In the AFC, we already have to deal with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson. Now I got to worry about a quarterback that can't throw five feet in front of him. I got to worry about a quarterback taking two to three seasons. The NFL, 17 games a year, man. I don't have time for that. The, the organization doesn't have time for that. What if Michael Pittman doesn't want to resign? What if Jonathan Taylor doesn't want to resign? Then what? We're in year four and we have no weapons as opposed to our two or one and a half? Come on, man. It just don't make no sense. We don't have the time for that. You really think that uh, Darius Leonard or Shaquille Leonard is going to sit there with his fifth or sixth quarterback since he's been in the league and look at Anthony Richardson after he has a bad season or two and say, I want to stay here? You think people are going to want to suffer and be at the top of the draft over and over? No. This is why I say you draft a quarterback that you at least know what you're going to get, not have to build up. I get it. Shane Steigen built up Jalen Hurts. Shane worked with Justin Herbert. He worked with Phillip Rivers in his last year in San Diego. I get it. I hear it. I understand what he was able to develop. Jalen Hurts had A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith this season. He had Dallas Goddard. He had the best offensive line in football. This is not the Philadelphia Eagles. When people understand that football is not something that you could reciprocate or repeat based off of previous experiences, previous teams, previous personnel, maybe people will start to understand what I'm talking about. Just because you worked with those people in better systems does not mean that that experience is going to correlate with a worse team. This is the worst team that Shane has ever coached right now. We're in the fourth pick for a reason. We are in the stage that we are in our existence, in our franchise's history for a reason. Since Andrew Luck retired, we have been mediocre. Do you think because he worked with the second-place team, the team that lost to the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, that, that, that means he's going to be a better a coach? That means he's going to be able to mold whoever he wants? That means he's going to be able to work with less inefficiencies, incompetencies, negligent, whatever the acronym you want to use, whatever the adjective, no. I'm not saying that Anthony Richardson can't turn out to be something special. I'm not saying that he doesn't come out through week one and sling it for 500 yards and six touchdowns. I'm not saying that. But from what I have seen with my eyes in person and on TV, just because you have an incredible combine does not erase your past. I'm sorry. I have no faith in him based on what I've seen on film and in person. And unless Shane is going to magically 
I don't know, levitate into his body and control his mind with his decision-making, I, I don't see this as working out. I see Anthony Richardson potentially even getting benched this season because he's going to play so poorly. So the way that I look at this is just, there's no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a huge development that the Colts are just going to have to accept. They know what they're getting with Anthony Richardson. Now, the way that I see this is I think when it comes to some of the some of the flaws that we saw with the Colts last year, and Kev, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this one. This is just a hypothetical, and I, I, I'm just asking asking this because you know the team probably better than anybody that I know. Do you think that there was a possibility that when the team signed Matt Ryan last year, that the, the team psychologically accepted that last year was probably going to be a bust? Before, no. like. Everybody was excited. We went from an inaccurate Carson Wentz to somebody that was probably one of the most accurate quarterbacks in NFL history. We went to a guy that was continuously making playoff contentions until Atlanta obviously fell apart with their personnel. We had the defense. We had the offensive line. We had the running back. Matt Ryan hasn't had a running back since Todd Gurley. Or not Todd Gurley. Um, oh, my God. Devontae Freeman. Oh, excuse me. That's what I meant. And Tevin Coleman, which was that Super Bowl year. Mm-hmm. you have Jonathan Taylor and one of the best offensive lines in football with a quarterback that is accurate. That is a formula for success with a top 10 defense behind you. I thought Matt Ryan was going to take us to the playoffs without a doubt in my mind. I saw us winning the division or at least coming into a wild card spot and competing and making a run in the AFC. Multiple analysts said the same thing. Matt Ryan makes the Colts not a Super Bowl contender, but an AFC contender to at least compete for the AFC. Nobody saw the offensive line giving up 40-plus sacks. Nobody saw Darius Leonard getting injured for the third out of his fifth year. Nobody saw the, 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 the collapse of our pass rush. Nobody. And here we are, top four in the draft, and we go and we pick a quarterback that arguably might be worse than Matt Ryan. Just because you're fast doesn't make you a good quarterback. I'm tired of this mobility conversation. You go from a guy that can't move in the pocket to a guy that, no, can, that runs a 4-4. What does a 4-4 do for me when it's third and 25? What does a mobile quarterback do for me when he's 6 of 28 from the field? The field? Nothing. Nothing. I'm not looking forward to this. Matt Ryan, when he signed, I said, I, said, I looked at my pops. I was like, yo, we got this. We, we're going to make a run this year. Anthony Richardson is the absolute opposite. Again, that's no disrespect to his talent. I get it. So, so here's what I'm going to say when it comes to Indy and how they should handle this. As far as I see it, you got to simplify it. If I'm Shane Steichen running the offense, more than likely they're going to entertain the possibility of running an RPO with him. Absolutely. Either that or they're going to have him under center. They're going to have him out of shotgun. I think more than likely it's going to be shotgun. And they're going to just focus on the RPO. Spread, yep. It's going to come down to the fundamentals. And I think if the Colts are smart, they simplify it and focus on the fundamentals of working on his short to intermediate passing. I think when it comes to the long ball, you know, we're talking about 25, 30 yards down the field. Listen, if AR wants to take a shot on one of those 50, 50 balls, if with Michael Pittman running a go route along the sideline, listen, have at it. If you have a favorable matchup, see what you can work with it. 
I think more than likely they're going to try to simplify the offense to where they're not going to put him in a situation where he's going to throw the ball into double coverage, you know, 20 to 25 yards downfield. If anything, it's going to be probably short to intermediate routes, knowing that, let's just say that Indianapolis does not have a strong wide receiving core, as you have well just laid out at this point. And I think more than likely, they're going to focus on trying to run the ball effectively with Jonathan Taylor. The biggest thing to me, this Kev, I, I know AR takes a lot of this conversation. The biggest thing to me is can this offensive line step up from last year? Because they played awful in stretches. Kev, Quentin Nelson is a Pro Bowl guard. It was getting bullied. I have never manhandled. seen I've never seen him get manhandled in some of the ways that he was getting destroyed last year. And it just seemed psychologically just the offense was so out of sync. Maybe that was because there was some, maybe some internal beef between some of the player personnel and maybe Frank Wright and some of the coaching staff. And I know you have plenty to say about Jeff Saturday uh, taking the interim role for a couple of weeks at the end of the year. But it'll be very interesting to see how this offense, when it comes to their personnel response to how Shane's going to run things in Indy, because this is a different system. This is going to be, a different look for Indy. Honestly, I can't even really remember the last time that Indy had this athletic of a quarterback at their helm. Never. I'm you telling know, you, it, Andrew Luck was the closest was, thing to the athleticism that we would have. But this is a step up, as far oh, yeah. as I see. There's no doubt about that, especially just with his overall size, with with Anthony Richardson's size, um, what he can run. Everybody knows that he possesses great athletic, tangible skills. Nobody denies that. But I think if they're smart, simplify the offense. Don't put him in situations where he's bound to fail. And at times, maybe test him with some some of these longer passes. I think if they're able to do that, run an effective RPO, run the ball with Jonathan Taylor, and get better production from their offensive line. Granted, these are a lot of ifs. I'm fully aware of that. I think this could be a potential step in a positive direction for them. Now, the likelihood that that would happen, I'm not saying it's zero, but it's not high. I think the best thing that Shane can do is just, I'm not saying slow roll this thing, but it's not like, all right, you're going to be Patrick Mahomes day one. We're going to no. let you sling the ball 50 times out there on the field. That is not going to work. I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in the offseason. You know, obviously we'll see what he does in training camp. He's got a long, he's, he's got a long way to go. But you know what? Most rookie quarterbacks have a long way to go if they end up having a successful career. They usually don't have it figured out in their rookie year. And and who knows? Maybe there are some things that Anthony Richardson can bring to the table where he shows improvement in some of these skills that he didn't show the best proficiency in when he was a member of the Gators at the University of Florida. And I and I think to me, you know, I, I know that a lot of attention is being paid to Anthony Richardson. Obviously, he's gonna be the guy that's gonna be under the lights. He, he's gonna have to be able to perform. But to me, it's gonna be the coaching staff. The coaching staff is gonna show their true colors here and whether or not these guys are proficient at their jobs, especially the quarterback room and Shane Steichen and the offensive line. Those two components, the coaching staff and the offensive line. If they don't perform, Anthony Richardson is bound to fail. There's no other way around it. Now, obviously, 
Anthony's responsible for the decision for the decision making. Well in point. But he has to be given an opportunity to be able to perform well at his job. And if the coaching staff and the offensive line do not do their jobs, they are setting him up for failure. That's how I see this Anthony Richardson decision. Going to be a long road. But there is a possibility of this ending up in a positive situation. It's just, for me, if I'm a betting man, I'm skeptical. It's slim pickings. It's, it's very ri- it, it, it's it's risky. It's a huge risk. We'll find out whether or not the risk is worth the reward, though. And honestly, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll leave it at we'll, we'll we'll leave it at that. But uh, moving on, uh, Kevin and I will discuss some of the other NFL related news. Obviously, the draft is going to be ongoing for, until Saturday, right? Yep. Because rounds two through is it two through four or is it two and two, two, and, two three and three tomorrow. Is, and then uh, Friday's four through uh, four seven. seven. Okay. So, you know, basically by the time that we record on Sunday night, we'll have an episode on Monday. You guys will have a pretty good picture of what the draft will be because then at that point it will be finished with. But some other news to attend to. Uh, we've got Aaron Rodgers news and we've got Lamar Jackson news. Kev, what do you want to start with? Start with Aaron Rodgers. We could definitely, to... I mean, I let's start with Aaron because it happened and then we'll get into Lamar because that happened today. Yeah, so we'll start with with we'll go with Rodgers. Rodgers, you guys already know at this point, gets traded to the New York Jets. I don't have all of the trade capital that was exchanged back and forth right here with me, but honestly, this really just comes down to the Jets have their number one guy at the quarterback spot going into next year. Now the question comes down to whether or not that Aaron Rodgers can be able to bring home a Lombardi trophy to the Jets in his tenure. Okay, if your guess is as good as mine, whether how long Aaron Rodgers is going to be a member of the New York Jets, could be for two years, could be for three, four is kind of pushing it. I'm looking at a two to three year window max when it comes to how long Aaron Rodgers is going to be a member of the Jets. But nonetheless, the Jets do have an upside here. They finally have a solid quarterback to roll with they have a really good defense to pair that with and they have some studs within this offensive personnel so granted the AFC is going to be a much more competitive conference just because Aaron's going to be there you know you got Aaron Rodgers in the Jets you got Patrick Mahomes in the Chiefs Joe Burrow in the Bengals Josh Allen in the Bills in his own division might I add and now Lamar Jackson just re-upped at Baltimore Justin Herbert Russell I mean, Wilson on his second year. It, there's, it, there's a lot. The, the the competitive nature of the AFC going into this season is going to be utterly wild. And Aaron Rodgers just adds another element to that as well. But, Kev, I just got to get your quick thoughts on Aaron Rodgers being traded to the Jets. And what do you think that Rodgers can bring to the table for the Jets going into the season? He brings them veteran leadership. He brings them consistency. And he brings them a, a, a veteran quarterback that can go out and actually win you a football game. Whereas Zach Wilson, when you put it in his hands, more than likely he'd probably lose you one. And to go into context what the trade was, the Jets send the 13th overall pick, a 2023 second-round pick, which is the number 42 pick this year, a sixth-round pick this year, which is number 207, and a conditional 2024 second-round pick, which becomes a first-round pick if Aaron Rodgers plays more than 65% of the snaps. In exchange, Green Bay sent over Aaron Rodgers the 15th overall pick, so the 13th and 15th were just swapped, 
And Green Bay also sends over a 2023 fifth-round pick, uh, number, number 170 overall this year. So what the Jets can do right now is they can, they can make the playoffs. I think that they got really close last year without Aaron. And with Aaron, I think that with the receiving core, Brees Hall coming back off an ACL injury, and that defense only getting stronger, that there is no reason why the New York Jets cannot make a playoff run, whether that is a surprising division title or if that ends up being an actual wildcard berth. So what I'm looking at is, with a strong, sturdy defense and a young receiving core, Aaron Rodgers gets both things that he needed most. Somebody to support him on the back end when the offense is struggling, and somebody to go out there and catch him passes and make some consistent route running like with Garrett Wilson and the supporting cast that's over there. I'm looking at Aaron and I'm saying the win now window is right now, whether that is this year or next year. That's it. Aaron Rodgers turns 40 this year, if not already turned 40. We saw Brady play into 44-45, but we also saw a lot of weak moments from Aaron Rodgers last season. Now you can make the argument because their offensive line was injured. They had to deal with some rookie receivers. Um, Their defense wasn't exactly the greatest in the world. He struggled for a number of things, but his decision-making in some games, especially in the Detroit game, the first Detroit game that they had played earlier on in the season, he had three red zone interceptions that were all on him. Those were all decision-making. That had nothing to do with the pass rush. That had nothing to do with the receivers dropping a pass. Aaron Rodgers made those decisions. Made those decisions. Now, similar to his predecessor, Brett Favre thought he had a lot left in the tank, in which he was then traded to the Jets after 16 seasons. Kind of weird how history is repeating itself. A defensive-focused team that needed a quarterback to make that run, to make that jump. And then, obviously, it did not pan out the way that everybody had thought. And then Brett Favre goes to Minnesota and leads them almost to an NFC championship. Or was it in the NFC? To a Super Bowl. Almost to a Super Bowl, excuse me, because they lost in the NFC championship to the Saints. I want to say I have faith in Aaron Rodgers because of what he's done. But usually when we base... My uh, our opinions off of history, it kind of makes things look biased because Aaron is not 29. Aaron is not 32. Aaron is not coming off of an MVP season. Was he the year before? Yes. But new team, different coaching staff, different receivers. I don't necessarily know if the Jets have a definitive identity. Obviously, everybody knows them, especially after last year being known for a, a defensive team. But if he can just provide you with 32, 3,400 yards, a positive 2-to-1 touchdown interception ratio, maybe 24 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, something around that magnitude, I think the Jets can make some noise in the playoffs. I'm not going to go out there and say they're going to make an AFC Championship or a Super Bowl, but I see them making it out of the first round at least, going into the second round, and again, competing to get into the AFC Championship. But Aaron Rodgers also being up there in age also means that you got to worry about his health. How many hits he can take, how long he can last, and how he meshes with these new teammates is all dependent upon the offensive line and Aaron Rodgers having patience, which we know he does not have any. So only time will tell. It's an immediate upgrade from Zach Wilson, yes, but in terms of how long this will last, it's, to me, maximum two years. I think when it comes to Rodgers being their future quarterback going into this upcoming year, I mean, he's an immediate upgrade over Zach Wilson. I mean... There's nothing to talk about here. Zach Wilson has, I I hate putting it in these terms, but it is true. He's relatively been a scrub in his early NFL career. And as far as I see it with this move, the Jets are in a situation very similar to what the Bucs presented themselves with when they went after Brady. They're in a win-now mode, and they're trying to 
obviously get a Super Bowl championship until Aaron Rodgers either A, decides to leave, or B, retires. How long he's going to play? Kev, I think it's going to be two to three years max. You know, granted, last year in Green Bay didn't work out for him. They missed the playoffs, didn't necessarily have the best year. But, I mean, just a couple years ago, Kev, Aaron Rodgers is an MVP caliber quarterback. I mean, this was a team in Green Bay that was constantly in the NFC Championship game, and they just fell short. They just, they couldn't make that extra step to get to the Super Bowl. But I think in this situation, I think he will be in a better overall position with the Jets this year upcoming compared to what he had last year with Green Bay. I think to me, this comes down to whether or not that the Jets can win a Super Bowl. And the idea is very entertaining when it comes to the Jets you know, competing for a Super Bowl. I think that there is a better pathway for the Jets to make a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers at the helm compared to what Green Bay had last year. Um, just because I think the Jets, from an overall perspective, have a much more stronger team to work with than the Packers did this past year. But, you know, if, if I'm looking at this, if Aaron Rodgers is going to be there for two to three years in New York, I'm not banking highly that the Jets are going to find a way to make a Super Bowl appearance. And it really kind of comes down to the landscape of the AFC. This AFC is stacked. The amount of competition that the Jets are going to have to face, not only this year, but the year after that, and then the year after that, it is going to be an uphill battle, to say the least. I mean, we could just talk about the AFC East, which the Jets reside in, in that division. You're going to have to go up against Josh Allen and the Bills. The Bills are always a team that is in competition for at least an AFC Divisional AFC Championship game and an outside shot to make a Super Bowl. Miami made the playoffs last year as a wild card team. Those are going to be two teams that you're going to have to compete against at a high level to be able to get past them. And the Patriots aren't going to be a walkthrough team either. You know, I, I'm saying the Patriots are probably the weakest team in the AFC right now, but they're not necessarily a pushover team either. And then after that, you know, you can look at the AFC West. You got to deal with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. You got Justin Herbert and the Chargers. You've got Russell Wilson. And Denver, Denver is looking for a bounce back year after a, a horrendous season last year. And then you kick it to the AFC North. You got to deal with Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. You got Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens, and he just resigned a massive five year deal. And the Ravens added some pieces to their wide receiving core. On top of that, so I mean, just from a quarterback competition perspective in the AFC, Aaron Rodgers is going to have to compete against. I'd say five to six elite. You could even probably say seven quarterbacks who are either in an elite territory or or a superstar talent. It is this is a night and day difference from what he was dealing with in the NFC, where over the last couple of years the the talent in the NFC has taken a drop off compared to what they were maybe five to six, seven years ago. I think that the Jets are going to be a successful team compared to what they were. Last year, when we finally get through this season, they're going to be better than a 7-10 and 10 team as far as I see it. They're going to make the playoffs. I think it just kind of comes down to, can they, win the, can they win the division? Or will they make a wild card spot? And I think that there's a good chance that they will hit one of those marks. I think the division is going to be tricky. I think the Bills are probably still the best team in the AFC East. But I still think a wild card spot is something that they can achieve. And then... 
we'll see where it goes from there. You know, obviously, Aaron Rodgers has got a pretty good cast uh, of targets to go through. You got Garrett Wilson, Corey Davis, and Alan Lazard as your top three wideouts. You got McCole Hardman, who's probably your fourth option. And then you got Tyler Conklin, and you got, is it Uzuma? CJ Uzuma. Uzuma. So this is a better cast of targets to be able to throw to uh, going into this season with the Jets compared to what he had last year in Green Bay. I would say that it's in his hands now. And it's going to come down to whether or not this offense can be able to perform and this defense can step up because this defense has shown flashes of greatness. And it's definitely a hungry group as far as I see it. But overall, they will be a successful team. It's just that I'm not banking on the idea that this team is going to be a Super Bowl contender. And it's simply just because the landscape in the AFC is really competitive. And I don't really see a pathway forward for the Jets to be able to get not only to a Super Bowl, but to win it on top of that. So if I'm a betting man at this point, I'm betting against the Jets making the Super Bowl. That's just how I see it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We'll see what happens. Only time will tell. But that leads us to our next conversation, which, of course, is going to be another quarterback goes and gets his bag. And that is Lamar Jackson, who has been going back and forth with the Baltimore front office for the it's last two over. seasons. It's finally over. Jesus. The drama, the years. rumors, the speculation. I mean, it, it it ends. Odell gets his deal and Lamar gets his shortly after. Like we said at the top five years, $260 million, which makes him the highest paid quarterback, if not highest paid player. In NFL history, after Jalen Hurts gets 255 just a week ago, and he gets a hundred and eighty-five million of that contract fully guaranteed. So totally Kyle represented by himself. Like he was yeah, self-represented yeah, in that one. One hundred percent solely on his own. Kyle, I gotta ask, what are your thoughts on the Lamar Jackson situation finally coming to a cease and uh him getting the payday that some would say he rightfully deserves, but of course we're always in question. Well, I'm just glad that this whole contractual battle between the Ravens and Lamar has finally come to an end. There's just so much drama going on between Lamar's camp and the Ravens front office. It just got so old that, you know, Kevin and I would look up reports when it came to what we would hear from just the contractual side of things or just the negotiations between Lamar and the Ravens. And it got very old. You know, you just tune it out after a certain point. It's like these guys are at an impasse and they're going to have to find a way to be able to find some sort of pathway to be able to get a contract done. And they were able to do that. You know, five years, $260 million, $185 million of it guaranteed. That is a massive contract. And I will say, it goes without a doubt that Lamar definitely deserves this contract. And I will give credit where credit is due. Baltimore's front office has supplied Lamar with a decent cast of targets on the offensive side of the ball excuse me, the offensive side of the ball to roll with next year. If you're just looking specifically at their wide receiving court, obviously you got Odell Beckham Jr. You've got Rashad Bateman. You've got Devin DuVernay. They just drafted Zay Flowers in the first round of the NFL draft Thursday night. You got Nelson Aguilar. These are five targets 
that can provide a decent offensive look compared to what the Ravens have had with their receiver core over the last couple of years. This is definitely a step up. And now that J.K. Dobbins has a full offseason to get really his legs underneath him just because when he came into um, when he came back into the fold for the Ravens last year, you could definitely tell at first that that ACL uh, was an issue, but he seemed to get a little bit more confidence as the weeks went on. And I think, you know, with this whole Lamar situation finally figured out where he's going to be their guy for the next five years. All right. What are the Ravens going to do? You're going to have, you're going to have to compete against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals are the top dog in that division right now. And, when we look at Joe Burrow and what he's been able to do in his early NFL career with the Bengals, he's gotten that team to a Super Bowl. Damn near won it. Lamar hasn't been able to do that. Lamar has had an MVP season where he was absolutely phenomenal. But the last two years, even though that I think that he's been very good in the last two years, unfortunately, injuries bit him at the wrong time. And unfortunately, he wasn't be he wasn't able to be out there on the field to be able to get the Ravens into an advantageous situation going into the playoffs. So, you know, Lamar got his money. Now we got to see whether or not that he lives up to the contract. And when it comes with Baltimore, I imagine if the front office is looking at Lamar, it's like, all right, you know, you got your contract. Now you're going to have to pay it back. You got to put us in a situation where we can go out there and compete for a Super Bowl. And the front office has done their job to be able to provide some decent targets to roll with. Now you got to go out there and execute. Hopefully, injuries don't become a trend just because over the last few years, it's definitely been something that has unfortunately held Lamar back. So he's definitely going to have to hopefully stay out there for a full year and, and be healthy going into next year. And I think that there's a very good chance that the Ravens can compete for a division title. I think that it's going to come down to the Bengals and the Ravens for the winner of the AFC North next year. And we'll see how it plays out. I'm like I said at the top, I'm just glad that this whole drama between the Ravens front office and Lamar's camp is finally over with. He got the contract that he deserved. Now he's got to show what he's made of, what he's worth. And he's got to go out there and try to get this team to a Super Bowl. He's got, what, five years to do it. It's on him now. But overall, I'm very happy that Lamar got his money. And... You know, that, I mean, that's a huge contract. You know, you're talking about a quarter of a billion dollars over the course of five years. That, 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 that's extremely massive, not only for himself, but for his family. But the Ravens, from a front office perspective, they know what comes with that. And now he's got to go out there and perform at a high level and try to get this team to Super Bowl. It's that simple as far as I see it. I don't have much more, um, if anything at all. I'm, I'm just going to, you can keep it split. I'm not going to drag this out. I'm happy he got his money. If Lamar Jackson does not deliver a Super Bowl in the next five years with the money that he has been guaranteed, this may go down as one of the biggest bust contracts in NFL history. Just because injury prone, if you are getting paid top dollar and you haven't been there, there is no leg to stand on. I don't want to hear it's competitive. I don't want to hear the AFC is stacked. If you as a front office are giving a player like Lamar Jackson with his checkered injury history as of late, a bag that is this big, that means you have faith that he is going to lead you to the promised land. And if he does not, 
with what they have assembled on this roster, and the NFL draft is still going, so you know they could add some more pieces as time progresses. I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, well, Lamar didn't have help, or, oh, Lamar's offensive. You wanted this much money. This is why Kyle and I always say it comes with a price. If you take away more than half of the cap, a quarter of the cap, and you want help, usually it doesn't work that way. So I give Lamar his props, self-representation, staying true to what he wanted, staying loyal, congratulations, again, providing for your family. But if you do not hold your end of the bargain, I'm not talking about a division title. I'm not talking about another MVP. You get paid this much money because it's a team sport and they believe that you can lead this team, their team, to a Super Bowl and at least compete to win. I don't want to hear in five years you went to five AFC championships you couldn't get there. I don't want to hear we went to the playoffs all five years but we couldn't get past the second round. You get paid the bag because you're going to get you're going to go there and you're going to do it. Jalen Hurts got the he went to a Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I don't know why Josh Allen would get the bag that he did when he went to an AFC championship as at, at the max level. I get it, he was due for one, but the money that he got at the time, eh? Joe Burrow, he's going to get it next year. They picked up his fifth option. Back-to-back AFC Championships, Super Bowl appearance before mm-hmm. he got paid. Mm-hmm. Patrick Mahomes, before he got paid, won a Super Bowl. You see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. He is one of those quarterbacks that got paid out of fear of losing him and what he could bring to the table. You now have to provide. That's all I'm going to say. I think there's a possibility that the Ravens can make a Super Bowl appearance. I think there's, so as well. I, I, th- I think, you know, granted the AFC, it's like we just talked about with Aaron Rodgers. It is a stacked conference. It's not going to be easy. Nope. There's going to be a lot of parity over the next couple of years when it comes to the teams that are going to represent the AFC. Is there an outside chance that the, the Ravens could be one of those teams? Absolutely. It's just, you know, it's on him now. Got paid all that money. I think if they make a Super Bowl, you know, is that contract worth it? Maybe. If they win one, definitely. You know, we'll see what happens. But like I said, it's not going to be easy, especially with how stacked this AFC is. And um, honestly, I, it's like I said, I'm, I'm very happy that, that Lamar was able to get the bag. I'm glad that this drama is over with, that we don't have to talk about it anymore. We can now focus on uh, what he'll do with the Ravens over the next couple of years. But, you know, with all that drama, it's like, all right, it's in the past now. It's like, what's the future going to hold? Time will tell. It really is that simple. But up next, we are going to kick it over to the NBA. I, I know Kev is really excited about this one. So, Kev, uh, you're going to talk about your, fa- fav- your favorite player at this point right now. It's probably Timothy Jimmy Butler. Timmy is him. Kev, you want to go over what Jimmy Butler did in the last two games against the Bucks in games four and five? You know what? It'd be my pleasure. Jimmy Butler, in his last two games, goes for 56 in game four, 42 in game five, in the clincher to solidify the series against the number one seeded Milwaukee Bucks. Not only does he go for 42, and he struggled in this game because it wasn't the most efficient night. He struggled from the free throw line and had five turnovers. Not like him at all. He hits the game-tying basket to force Milwaukee into overtime. What more can you ask? And honestly, 
I'm just going to set you up for this uh, Jimmy question the best that I can. So, you know, obviously when it comes to the Heat, they move on to the second round. They will put the New York Knicks. We will get to see Jimmy perform potentially at a high level once again at the Garden. It's um, it's going to be a very interesting series between the Heat and the Knicks for sure. But Kev, I, I just got to ask you about Jimmy. Kev, how impressive was Jimmy Butler in that series against the Milwaukee Bucks? And what do you think he's going to bring for the Heat when they go up against the Knicks in the second round of the playoffs? Jimmy Butler had the best first-round performance in the playoffs. It's not close. It's not up for debate. It's not a discussion. You're going to argue with yourself because it's not going to be with me. Jimmy Butler was on the eighth-seeded Miami Heat who lost their first game in the play-in and come back and beat the Chicago Bulls to just sliver in, right? Despite Chicago leading in that game in the fourth quarter, they, for whatever reason, go on an absolute horrible shot selection final three minutes. Miami holds on. Miami wins. And they go on to face the top-seeded Milwaukee Bucks. Kyle and myself both picked the Bucks to win. I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it and pretend like we didn't. I'm not going to act like I didn't think that the Knicks, or excuse me, the Heat had a chance because I didn't think that they did. Giannis gets hurt in game one. So does Tyler Hero. Then Victor Oladipo goes down. But throughout the first round, Jimmy Butler averages 37 points per game. Damn near 38. He willed this team to win. Jimmy Butler is the definition of a player that coasts through the regular season, does just enough to get them in, and manages and manages to just keep them relevant. It is very difficult to compete and hold yourself to a standard of being one of the best two-way players in the league, score 30-something points a game, high 20s. That's not Jimmy Butler. He's got the attitude. He's got the grit. He's got the mentality. He's got the drive to want it. That is why Dwayne Wade wanted him to take the realm of the best shooting guard in the league or one of the best shooting guards in the league or the king of Miami, whatever whatever you nickname you want to provide Jimmy Butler, right? Jimmy and his story, if you, for those of you that are unaware, kicked out of the house at 13 years old, no father, doesn't play basketball until later in high school, goes to a JUCO, struggles and damn near debates on quitting, goes to Marquette, sits behind Wesley Matthews for a year, Damn near quits at Marquette. Doesn't think he's going to get drafted. Gets picked 30th overall to the Chicago Bulls. And wills his way into an extension to where then he gets traded to to Minnesota. Has a whole escapade with the entire Minnesota starting lineup to where he pulls the third string bench players on in a scrimmage at practice. Beats the starting five. Embarrasses them to the point where they don't want to play with Jimmy anymore. To where Jimmy then gets traded to Philadelphia to where he gets let go in free agency because Philadelphia wants to sign Tobias Harris and keep Ben Simmons. Miami scoops him up, signs him for a max, and ever since then, the Heat have been consistently in the playoffs with a finals appearance in the bubble. To where Jimmy Butler, (laughs) with the famous picture of leaning over the wall, gives every ounce of his soul to the Miami Heat organization and takes two games away from the defendant, to the eventual champ Lakers. He's played the Bucks a multitude of times. He's not somebody that's super flashy, like I said, that goes out there and scores a whole lot. In the regular season, he scored 23 points per game. 37.6 in the playoffs. Goes for 6-5 and five or 5-5 five and five in the regular season. Goes for 6-5 and five in the playoffs. Shoots 35% from three in the regular season. Shoots 44 in the playoffs. 
54% from the field, 60% in the playoffs. People say that greatness is personified and defined in the moments that matter the most, a.k.a. in the playoffs. It just seems like Jimmy Butler takes his game to the next level every time he steps on that court and it's in a postseason environment. He welcomes it. He thrives in it. Jimmy Butler is unequivocally a superstar. There's no debate. There's no discussion. He doesn't have to score 30 a game in the regular season to do so because he scores damn near 40 a game in the playoffs when it matters the most. What's that NBA commercial that was airing when we were kids where amazing happens? That's the postseason. That's why Jimmy said, this is my shit. You can't argue it. Jimmy Butler had the best playoff first-round performance out of any series in the playoffs thus far. Kev, I was just looking up some of the stats on Twitter when it came to how effective he was in that series against the Bucks. Do you mind if I go over some of the shooting percentages uh, that he was hitting against some of the defenders oh, yeah. that Milwaukee was I have all of them here, him? too. I'm, I'm, I got you. So, Jimmy Butler, when he was guarded against Drew Holiday, he shot 57% against Drew Holiday. Against Giannis, 86%. Oh my God. Against Chris Middleton, 50%. Brooke Lopez, 63%. Wes Matthews, 50%. Bobby Portis, 86%. Jay Crowder, 67%. Grayson Allen, 57%. And then Joe Ingles and Pat Connaughton, 50%. He was giving buckets. To everybody. No matter who guarded him. Kev, I have to say, this is one of the most perfect. This is one of the best playoff performances I've ever seen in a series by an individual player. There have been great playoff performances that we've seen from superstars over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, as long as we've been watching basketball. The fact that he closed the series in the last two games, dropping a 56 point bomb in game four, willing that team single handedly to a victory. That was the first game that Giannis had come back uh, when he missed those two games prior in games two and three. It looked like the Bucs were in control of that game four until Jimmy just started taking off in the fourth quarter. And then he follows it up with a 42-point performance, like you said, in that closeout game, in game five in Milwaukee, and hits some of the most critical shots that needed to be made, especially that one right at the end of the fourth quarter to tie it up, to send it into OT. Look, when it comes to Jimmy Butler, this guy raises his overall effectiveness to a whole new level when it comes to the playoffs. Kev, I've never really seen a such a distinction from somebody who plays really well in the regular season and then literally turns it up to 12 in the playoffs like Jimmy. There are very few guys that can do that. And I know... Jimmy throughout the regular season isn't somebody that we widely regard as an MVP caliber player. But when it comes to the playoffs, Kev, find me another guy who's better than Jimmy right now in just a playoff scenario. I can't. Granted, They're saying it's I know, Devin Booker, but it's... I know I, I know LeBron James is out there. I know that Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, uh, you could say Kawhi, those first two games with the Clippers before he ended up, you know, dealing with some knee issues. You know, Kawhi was getting buckets too uh, early on in that series against Phoenix. Not like Jimmy. 
the, the fact that in the last two games combined, he was averaging 49 points a game is wild. Jimmy is just on another level. And when it comes to what the Knicks got to deal with, with him, I'm telling you right now, I know that Miami's an AC. Kev, they didn't play like an AC. No, I'm playing like it. Even in that first game, before Giannis got hurt, the Heat were giving them problems. The Heat were up early in that game before Giannis got hurt. And, you know, obviously, when it comes to the Bucks, you know, when you lose Giannis, that's a huge piece. You lose him for two games, and then he may not be 100% in those last two games, even though I thought he was still extremely effective in games four and five. How are you going to stop someone like Jimmy, though, when he's on an absolute tear? And what, he shot 60% from the field in that series against Milwaukee? If you're New York, I know New York handled Cleveland very well in that first round series. And honestly, I'm very surprised that the Cavs got bounced out in five games. That was something I was not expecting. I was expecting at least a six, seven game series. And the fact that New York gave it to Cleveland in that manner, honestly, kudos to them. How are you going to stop this dude? This dude, like I said, just averaged 49 points in the last two games in, in that Milwaukee series and just beat the number one seeded team. Not only in... Were, were the Bucks the best team in the NBA? Did they have the best record in the NBA or was that I the Nuggets? The Nuggets had the best record. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I had that right. But either way, number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Can't sleep on them. And the Heat knocked them out in five games? Granted, I know Giannis had the injury, and and that definitely played a part in it. But, you know, when you're the sixth team in NBA history to knock off a, a number one seed when you're the A seed, I got to give the Heat kudos. But with Jimmy, man, if you're if you're the Knicks, if you're Tom Thibodeau, you got to hit that. You got to hit the uh, the tape hard over the next couple of days to find a way to slow this guy down. You got to find a way to double him. You got to find him a way to kick it out to somebody else. Because if Jimmy takes over in that series, there is a real possibility that he could go to the Eastern conference finals. I think there's a really good chance that they could be able to do that. If Jimmy does not slow down and he keeps up this pace, watch out. This, this dude is on one. And Kevin was like you said to me, I thought that the the Bucks would come back and make the series respectable, but after Game Four, and you saw just how animated Jimmy was after hitting some huge shots and saying that this is like this is why I'm here, like this is my shit. It's like, oh, the, you don't want to deal with. You're this not dude. knocking him off that mentality. He, like he's he, not coming off that hill, and it's not just about Jimmy individually, right? So obviously, it's a team sport. Mm-hmm. Miami, I've talked about this several times in the last week. Miami had one of the worst offenses in the regular season in terms of efficiency, points per game, field goal percentage. Like They just were not a good offensive team. And all of them elevated their level of play. Gabe Vincent, Max Strews, Duncan Robinson hasn't played meaningful minutes. All of these players had to step up because of the injuries to Tyler Hero and then Victor Oladipo. Bam Adebayo stepped up and had a triple-double in that game-clinching game as well. That game-clinching win, excuse me. He had 20-10-10. People aren't talking about that. He guarded Giannis pretty effectively down the stretch. Not to say that he didn't still have 38 and 20 in terms Giannis of Giannis. Played well. combo, but in terms of being able to lock up and keep possessions and make good contests at the line to where they were good fouls because Giannis missed 13 free throws. 
They were sending him to the line, albeit it ended up getting Bam fouled out. But you put the right person at the line because of his inability to finish at the free throw line. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that was strategic. Nobody wants to foul anybody. But if you're going to foul somebody on that team, foul him. you better foul Giannis. The odds are in your favor in the statistics when it comes to that, right? But people continue to say, well, Jimmy Butler, um, you know, he had help because Giannis was hurt. Okay. And Devin Booker had help when Kawhi was hurt, when Paul George was hurt. Devin Booker still got to play with Chris Paul. Devin Booker still plays alongside Kevin Durant, arguably the greatest scorer of this generation. Depending on who you ask, you can even say top three scorer of all time because of his arsenal and his his triple threat capability of driving it, finishing at the rim, and being able to shoot over the top of anybody. And if you want to throw handles in there, that's just a, a four-headed monster. Jimmy Butler did it with a bunch of undrafted free agents. They have seven undrafted players on that team. Mm-hmm. And a 43, 40-year-old man that doesn't touch the court that likes getting into it off the bench in Udonis Haslam. The OG was about to throw hands with Bobby Portis. That is who he has to work with. Okay? Bam, so when Bam, you talk about... Bam. When you talk... We, Bam has been so inconsistent in the playoffs and in the regular season where he has nine-point performances, 11-point performances, like, he's on a max deal. Those are not like acceptable numbers though. for a max contract player. You can't act like he's a scrub, though. When it comes to putting up and helping Jimmy, they have not been consistent. Look up Bam's stats. They're not yeah. good. I, well, in, in the most critical game, it's like you said, he dropped the triple double. Like I said, he stepped up when it mattered. But again, when it comes to comparing who had the better postseason of the first round, it's not close. Yeah. Jimmy dropped 56 by himself mm-hmm. against the best team in the conference. It's not close because Giannis was on the court for the fifty-six point bomb. There was no well, he wasn't playing. And, and Giannis, Giannis played well there. in that game. And Giannis played well in that game too. So I don't want to hear it. Jimmy Butler is ready for these moments. He welcomes them. And Jimmy Butler, like Kyle said, if they keep going, I would not be surprised. Miami and, makes an Eastern Conference and, Finals run as an eight seed. And, and Kev, I got to ask you. You know, you're from New York. You know the streets in New York better than I ever will. If you had to guess right now, what do you think the streets are saying about Jimmy? Oh, they're welcoming it. They love the shit talk. They love Jimmy Butler coming out there aggressive. They want players like that. Because he brings that energy. Yeah, because he gives it right back. And the fans are going to give it back too. New York fans will always like somebody that is going to talk the talk because Jimmy walks the walk. Now, do you think that when it comes to Jimmy, that there's a higher level of respect that New York Knicks fans will give to him compared to someone like Trey Young where it seems like there's outright hatred for him? I don't know if it's going to be respect. New York don't respect nobody. New Yorkers don't like anybody. I would say if it's a respect factor, it's because Jimmy's going to go out there and consistently give them trouble, whereas Trey Young would have nights where he'd go for 30 and the nights where he'd have 15. Like It it really depends. I don't see Jimmy having a bad night like that because I don't think that outside of R.J. Barrett, they have really anybody that can guard him on a regular basis. Um, It really just depends on what Tom Thibodeau, Tom Thibodeau, excuse me, is going to throw out there for Jimmy because we all know that he knows Jimmy Butler very well. That was his first coach, and he coached him for about four or five seasons. So whatever Tom's going to do, it's got to be something consistent because you might have to throw a double team at him to start this game off or start this series off because if Jimmy gets it going, good luck. You think Jimmy can light it up at the Garden? I think Jimmy lights the stages. Yeah, if he can light it up in Miami, which is another big city, I don't see him shying away from a bigger crowd in New York. I know. it's, it's It just seems like... When it comes to the garden, it's just 
the, the stage, shine it, the brightest. It's it's elevated at the garden. I think because even we've seen players in the past, and it could be somebody on the opposing team, you know, where they get a really good treatment from the crowd. Whether it's like Kobe dropping what didn't he drop like sixty one at the garden? Yeah, LeBron mm-hmm. dropped. LeBron dropped like fifty something. Like you know, I will say when it comes to the garden, like when somebody walks in there and they drop like a 40, 50 bomb against them. There's respect that goes to that player. Yeah. At the so, end of the day, they'll always give the credit. You know what I'm saying? But if, if you're the Knicks, granted, I, I, I know, I know you made it to the second round, but I, I don't know if they would have an easier time against the bucks or the heat because the heat are on one right now. Like just the momentum that the heat have right now. And just that's the, the scariest part. It, it just Jimmy is lasered focused, right? He's so laser focused. He is he is one of those players where it almost kind of reminds me of that mama mentality. Like it just he's so laser focused, and the tenacity and just the competitive nature that he brings to that court. It's like he's like I'm that dude. It's like give me the rock, and I'm gonna go make it happen. Very Kobe. Yeah, Ultra drew up a play. For someone else in that final shot in he's regulation like, for game five. He's like, no. Nah, and he said, no, me. let me be that guy. Yep. That is somebody you need to fear as an opposing player. Like, I understand that as a competitor, you're not supposed to be scared. Back here, this motherfucker's coming to kill me. That's and, that's the mentality that Jimmy brings, and I agree completely. That Mamba mentality, that 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 laser focus, that determination, that grit of I'm coming for your neck and I don't care who you are, that is the embodiment of what Jimmy Butler brings to the table. And New York and Miami, it's gonna be I'm hoping, please God, be a good series. I'm not making no predictions because every time we make predictions, that motherfucker yeah. don't come true. All I know is is if the Knicks are defending him and he's knocking down Shots like he did against Milwaukee. Good luck. They're going to be debilitated by that. That is going to just be something that it's like, it's like I did my best. It's like he's just on fire. But nonetheless, I think that series, it starts on Sunday, if I'm correct. Yep. So hopefully that that's a good series. I just want a good series. You know, We'll see who moves on to the Eastern Conference Finals, but that'll definitely be a fun one to watch as far as I see it. So... But on the other side of the coin, we have to focus on the team that did get knocked out of the playoffs, and that was the number one seeded Milwaukee Bucks. And Kev, I'll let you have the floor on this one. Giannis had some things to say in his post-game press conference after they lost game five to the Heat. So, you know, I'm obviously I don't have the quote pulled up right here, but for those of you that are unaware, Giannis was asked by a reporter who apparently had asked the same question to him last year if he considers this season a failure. To which Giannis responded, again, I'm paraphrasing. If you don't get a promotion, he has to report it directly in terms of correlating to the reporter's life. If you don't get a promotion, is your life a failure? If you don't get a raise, is your career a failure? Is that year a failure? And then he proceeds to quote Michael Jordan and go, Michael Jordan played 15 years, wins a championship in six of them. Are the other nine years of Michael Jordan's career a failure? Every year you build, every year you grow, and yada, yada. He proceeded to say that his career is not a failure because you learn in sports. Mm-hmm. You grow in sports. And how you build and learn from those losses is how you continue to develop in his career. 
So, Kyle, I got to ask. Obviously, we understood where Giannis was coming from. A multitude of media personalities have given their feedback on those comments. So I'm asking you, what do you believe Giannis meant when he said that it wasn't necessarily deemed a failure for this season? So the way that I look at it from the Bucks, I'm just going to focus on the series at first, and then I'm going to get into his comments. This series was definitely impacted by Giannis missing games two and three with a lower back injury. And obviously, we can go back to game one where he suffered that injury early on, tried to come back, and he just wasn't able to go back on the court uh, just because the injury was just too much to deal with. And you know, when you don't have Giannis, which he's without a doubt the Bucks' best player, and damn near half of the games in that series, it's definitely going to have an impact. And I will say, the Bucks in this case, with just me, I'm looking at it from this perspective, they have a little bit of an excuse when it came to losing this series. Obviously, some players on that team may feel differently. They had opportunities to win some of those games against the Heat, and they did fall short. But for me, Giannis's injury did play a significant factor in the reason why the Bucks lost that series. But you have to give credit to the Heat for winning that series in five games. To be the number eighth seeded team, barely make it into the playoffs based on their playing tournament uh, play. They had to win their second playing tournament game just to get the eighth seed. And then you knock out the one seed in five games. I believe it's only the sixth time in NBA history that's happened where an eighth seed has defeated a number one seed. All props and a tip of the cap goes to the Heat. Now let me get to what Giannis said in his post-game press conference. Now the way that I interpret what Giannis was saying was this, is that I think there is this idea, and it's prevalent in... I would say the sports media landscape that there's an expectation that came with the number one seed of bucks going into the postseason, which is this team could definitely compete for an NBA finals this year. And honestly, the expectation to me is an accurate one, just because when you're the number one seed, there's a pretty good chance that not only are you going to make an Eastern conference finals appearance, there's a very good chance you could represent the Eastern conference and potentially win an NBA finals. Now, in this case, they fell short as a team in achieving that goal. When it comes to how I see the Bucks and how this season played out for them, the regular season, they were extremely fine. You know, you got the number one seed. That's a huge accomplishment. Obviously, they fell short in the playoffs. And it's like I said, Giannis's injury definitely played a part in that. I look at this season when it comes to the Bucks as a team, as a failure. That does not mean I look at each individual player as a failure based on how they played in the series. I don't view it that way. I think the fact that all of these guys have made it to the top of the game in making the NBA. These guys are incredible basketball players. Nobody denies that with them. But there's a difference between the individual side of things where there's no case to be made that these guys are individual failures because they lost as the number one seed against the number eight seed in the heat. But when it comes to the team in trying to compete for a title, which is the goal of every team in the NBA, they did fail in that regard. And when it comes to Giannis talking about Michael Jordan saying that he won six titles in his 15 year career were the other nine seasons a failure. As an individual, no. But as a team, when it comes to the Bulls and trying to 
win titles, some of those seasons were a failure in regards to winning a title. Now, some of those years before Michael Jordan's Bulls winning championships year after year, were some of those failures? No, because the expectation was a little bit different. You know, Michael Jordan had to contend with the Boston Celtics for years, the Detroit Pistons. And then they were able to learn from those playoff losses and be able to build the character from that and be able to win six titles in an eight-year span when you know, go on two three-peats within an eight-year span, which is unbelievable in NBA terms. And when it comes to the Bucs, yeah, th- the season was a failure, but you could definitely learn from your failures. And I think that failure is just a part of life. If, if fail, failure happens all the time, not just in professional life, but in individual life. And it comes down to whether or not that you can be able to learn from your failures and try to correct that when certain situations occur in the future. And I think when it comes to this year as a team, they fell short in achieving the goal, which was winning an NBA title. I don't look at them as failures, like the individual players are failures. That's not the case. But as a team, you know, they failed in achieving the top goal, which was winning an NBA championship. So, you know, and I understand where Giannis was coming from with his comments. And I think he was, he wasn't trying to be personal. He was giving credit due to the question that he was asked. It's just, you know, when he's saying that there's no failure in the NBA, that part I kind of disagree with because if there's no failure, then what would you call this where, you know, you get knocked out of the first round of the playoffs. It is a failure as a team, but I think that they could definitely learn from their failures and they could find ways to be successful because of that. That's the nature of not just basketball, but that's just the nature of life. If you don't learn from your failures, then all you will repeat is failures. And, the Bucs have been able to achieve the, the top goal and being able to win an NBA championship. They just did it a couple years ago. And there's a very good chance that they could learn from their mistakes, learn from their failures, and get back to the top of the NBA world next year by winning a championship. They could definitely do that. But it comes down to learning from their failures. And that's probably the only part that I disagree with Giannis on, saying that, you know, in the NBA, there's no failures. Like, as individual players, you can maybe make that case, but as a team, you can't make that case because teams fail all the time. They fall short in achieving their goals. But, you know, that's how I kind of see this whole thing with Giannis. I understood where he was coming from with his overall comments, but as a team, they did fail in achieving an NBA title. But it's like I said, it's like if you learn from your failures and you will attain success. And honestly, I'll just leave it at that. There's not much else I can add to it just because Kyle and I talked about this when he made the comments. We talked about it this morning and we also kind of talked a little bit more in detail before we started recording. And we're on the same concept. We're on the same wavelength as we usually are. And everybody understands that in sports, your goal is to win, to compete for a championship to the point where you are at the pinnacle. You are at the top of your game you have completed everything that you can and achieved the plateau. You've, you've gotten to the top of the mountaintop. Now, individually, Giannis competed for an MVP. 
He was battling injuries later in the season and in the playoffs. Obviously, at the end of the day, you can't necessarily blame somebody like the media loves to, like sports media likes to. Giannis didn't play very well. Giannis didn't do this. Giannis scored 38 points and had 20 rebounds. He missed 13 free throws, absolutely. That's why they're called free throws. Skip Bayless made a point to really address that and say, I don't understand how someone of his magnitude misses that many when he made 15 of 17 in an NBA Finals game to win a championship in a game six. But again, I digress. The point of it is he did miss those free throws. He was not able to solidify himself. And he did look hesitant, if not kind of lost in the last quarter and in overtime. He was one of nine in the fourth quarter. And he almost lost him the game on that tip. And Kyle, I don't know if you saw that, where Brooke Lopez and Bam Adebayo had a jump ball center court. And Giannis like, pushed the ball out of bounds to where Chris Middleton had to dive and save it. Mm-hmm. It almost looked like Giannis was like kind of ducking the smoke to an extent because it was kind of like a random like why would you why would you do that and obviously we all know Giannis can't shoot the ball effectively and when Miami set that wall or stacked the paint he was pretty much ineffective for the most part and at that point you say you had a good game but you had a very inefficient time to struggle from the field and you still are not able to knock down free throws so you can make the arguments that Giannis's comments were justified, uh, valid, but again, when you talk about sports, it's a competition. You play the game to win the championship. You play the game to get to the championship. You play the game to continue to grow, yes. You play the game as a team. So maybe individually he did not necessarily fail completely, but as an organization, as someone who got the top seed, as someone who had home court advantage throughout the entire playoffs if they would have continued to win as a favorite to, again, potentially compete for an MVP as an individual and then, of course, compete for an NBA championship as a team, you did not meet those expectations. I do agree with what Jay Williams said on first take and say, like, obviously, I would probably word it differently. It was more of a disappointment based on the season that they had statistically and overall. But in terms of a failure, would you tell a 15 or 16-year-old kid because they didn't win their high school state championship that their season was a failure? That's not how you would coach a kid. You wouldn't use the words like that. But again, they're not children. They're not making millions of dollars. So to that argument, I will say there are some holes. But I understand where Giannis was coming from. I understand that he holds himself accountable. I comprehend that he looks at it from more of a positive light. The media likes him. Uh, Multiple TV personalities like him. He's always a positive individual. He's never somebody that talks down, has a negative outbreak or outburst to the media. He even apologized to that specific... um, that specific media person that asked that question or that reporter and said, I don't want to make this personal. Um, I like players like that. Him acknowledging, you know, like, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm coming at you despite my frustrations of this loss. And that speaks volume to not only Giannis as a whole, but his specific character. So again, I give him some props for being positive. But at the end of the day, he knows it. Everybody else knows it. With how Milwaukee's season went, this season, unfortunately, was a failure because I don't think anybody saw them losing in the first round. Yeah, and, and I feel the same way. It, you know, the interesting thing is, like, when you look at failure, I don't think failure is like this end all be all, and it's this negative thing, and that's all that it is. Now, granted, in the specific task at hand, if you fail at that, then yet, yeah, then you know, obviously, you're probably going to feel bad about that. But with failure comes an opportunity to be able to learn from those mistakes. That's the nature of not only basketball, like what happened in this series with the Bucks. You can apply that to everybody. Kev, like when we get on here 
to record our episodes. Do we hit every point perfectly? Do we say everything perfectly like where it's conveyed exactly how we think of it in our head? Nope. You know, we fail at certain segments where, you know, maybe we didn't say certain things right. We used the wrong word. We could have conveyed our thoughts in a more efficient manner or just a better manner overall. We could have been a little bit more descriptive. But that gives us opportunities to be able to learn from our mistakes and apply that to the future. And hopefully, as time goes along, if you learn from your mistakes, you become better from those mistakes. You know, Kev, we were just talking about like Elon Musk before we started recording. You know how many tests that Elon Musk and, and SpaceX did before they were finally able to send a rocket up into space where it didn't blow up within like the first 15, 20 seconds? Countless times. Numerous amounts of times. But it, it, you have to learn from your mistakes. It's like, hell, they just, they sent up the uh, the Starship uh, rocket just last week. It's this massive 40-story tall rocket. This thing is massive. And it exploded at like 130,000 feet in the air. You know, that was technically a failure, but they were actually kind of happy with the result because now they could be able to look back at what went wrong and they can learn from their mistakes and apply. Um, they can apply it to their next mission when they launch another rocket. The biggest thing is, yeah, it's like, it's okay to like fail, but it's like, you have to be able to learn from your failures. If you don't do that, then that's just the, the definition of insanity. You do the same thing over and over again and you expect different results. That's it, that's another situation entirely. But when it comes to Giannis, I completely understand where he's coming from. It's just, I think he was frustrated that he got that same question from that same reporter back-to-back years. And coming off of the loss where you lose a series in five games, you know, I can understand Giannis being frustrated. I would be too. It's just, you know, like it's okay to fail. If you put your best effort out there and you fell short, like it's whatever. But you have to learn from your mistakes. And if they do that, then the Bucs can get back pretty quickly. And then I, I think next year they will be in a very similar situation. They'll be probably a top two, top three team in the East. And it's probably going to be because of Giannis. So, you know, just leave it at that. Yeah. But, uh, but hey, for, we have we have nothing but good things to say about Giannis. I've yeah. said it a multitude of times. The guy yeah. is so respectful. And for him apologizing in that instance to just clarify with that guy, like, yo, I'm sorry. This has nothing to do with you as a person. That takes such character to do, man. I don't think people understand. After a loss, Mm -hmm. your season's over. You get embarrassed. He, knowing him, probably blamed himself for missing 13 free. For him to catch himself to where that could have gone south quickly Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge, I'm sorry, Giannis, Giannis gains a lot of points for me as an individual. That is I an think, amazing feat. Because in real time, I think that he was catching on to like how he was conveying it. Yep. Because I think he even mentioned it's like I don't want to make like I'm sorry if I'm making this seem personal. Like you know, and I know Giannis, I know that he's Greek and Greek is his first language. And I know like when it comes to English, that's not the most proficient language that he speaks compared to being from Greece, speaking in Greek. But, you know, I definitely appreciate the fact that 
like you said, he caught himself and, and tried to phrase it in a way where the reporter could understand where he was coming from. Because Giannis was trying to add nuance to what he was saying. Agreed. It's just, I think, I think the emotion probably just from the frustration of losing the game and then getting that question on top of that kind of fueled that initial answer. But the fact that he was able to catch himself and then just try to, I guess, reframe it in a way where hopefully everybody could understand where he was coming from. And I did by the end of it. It was like, I knew where Giannis was. It's like, you know, it's okay to be frustrated. Like I can understand that, especially after what just happened in that game. Like, I think even the reporters probably know that Giannis is probably going to be difficult to talk to, to a certain extent after losing that series, knowing that I think the Bucks probably had a better idea of how this series was going to play out. It just didn't play out in their favor, but you know, it's better than are... saying I'm out like some people. Yeah. So I, there've been plenty of players that have done that before. It's, Dylan Brooks is one of the latest ones to do that. So, you saw him speak up after the Game 5 win? I didn't catch his comments after Game 5. I saw his... It wasn't anything insulting, but he finally spoke up in general, and it's like you speak when winning. It is He's making it so much worse for himself, he doesn't even understand it. But I'm not going to waste time talking about him. We have one more game we're going to get to, because we talked about the Cavaliers, we talked about the Knicks in volume and the upcoming matchup. I don't really want to drain it, guys. Obviously, the Knicks won the series against the Cavs. The Cavs fell apart. Very, very Donovan Mitchell didn't show up. Very impressive for the Knicks. Kudos to them. We got the series wrong. Shout out to the boys back home. The Garden is happy. New York City is lit. I'm excited for that matchup against Miami on Sunday. Must-see TV. But there is a series we need to talk about, which has been the most entertaining series in the playoffs, and that has been the defending champion Golden State Warriors taking a 3-2 series lead against the youthful and exciting Sacramento Kings. Obviously, Golden State goes into Sacramento and wins on the road. Shocker, I know. And again, takes a 3-2 series lead. They're headed back to the Bay tomorrow night with a chance to upset the Kings. Kyle, I got to ask, what were your thoughts on how this game went and, of course, how the series has been overall? Well, the series between the Warriors and the Kings has lived up to the height. Uh, Simply just because, you know, when you look at this matchup, Golden State... You know, they're coming off of an NBA championship last year. They are essentially the NBA dynasty that has really run the NBA over the last 10 years. And then you have this young and inexperienced team in the playoffs with the Sacramento Kings. And they've really pushed Golden State to their limits in this series so far. And I will say, you know, to focus on game five, before this game actually took place, Kevin and I talked about, you know, which team had more pressure on their back going into that game five, which could potentially swing the pendulum in the series to whoever wins that game in their favor. And when it came to me, I looked at Golden State as a team that faced more pressure because when it comes to Golden State, their away record was horrendous this past year. They were in the bottom barrel, basically like one of the worst three teams in the NBA when it comes to their away record. Their home record is is phenomenal. They're one of the best teams in the NBA. It's just, I had to see whether or not that they could be able to perform on the road and win a basketball game in a playoff setting. And they were able to do that in game five. And, you know, just to look at game five really quick, I thought Steph was great once again, dropped over another 30 point performance. Clay has been really good behind Steph this entire 
playoff series so far. He's dropping somewhere in between 20 to 25 points. You know, sometimes he can even get up into the upper 20s, and he was able to do that once again. I thought they were able to get good contributions uh, from Andrew Wiggins. It, it's really nice to see Andrew Wiggins be able to come back from that extended period of time that he missed uh, towards the end of the regular season, and he really seems to have given the Warriors a spark when he's been out there on the court, especially knocking down some pretty good mid-range jumpers and the occasional three here and there. You know, and that when you look at the Kings, you know, despite the fact that they have that playoff ex- inexperience, they're giving the Warriors a lot to handle, you know, and I know De'Aaron Fox going into game five, I think he had fractured like his fingertip on one of his hands in on game his shooting four. Hand. It, and the fact that he was still able to, put up damn near 25 points in the process and, and knock down some shots for the Kings. I got to give De'Aaron Fox a lot of credit. You know, I thought Sabonis had a relatively good game. Uh, Malik Monk had 20 points. It, it was really a pretty competitive game, but it, it seemed like it was Golden State that seemed to just have that lead that Sacramento just couldn't close the, the deficit. And, you know, Golden State has this huge win in game five, and now it kicks it back to game six in Sac in not Sacramento in San Francisco. And you know, when it comes to game six, you, you know, what are we gonna get? Are we gonna get a De'Aaron Fox show where he can go out there and drop 40 points and, and single handedly, you know, put the team on his back and be that primary force to lead Sacramento to a potential game seven? You know, they're gonna have to get some good contributions from Harrison Barnes, Malik Monk. You know, we'll see whether or not that, you know, someone like Keegan Murray can step up once again and knock down some critical three-point shots or Sabonis comes up and gets some some big points down low and then maybe some offensive rebounds. Or is this going to be where Golden State, they shut it down, they close out the series in six, and it's because Steph and Clay and Draymond, they've been here before, and this is just their territory. This is area that they know, this is the area that they know very well, and they finish out what they need to do in game six. As far as I see it, I picked Golden State to win this series. I'm rolling with them in game six. I think they close the door on this series in six games. I think this is going to be a nail biter of a game, very similar to what we saw in game four. Game four was probably the most competitive game that we've seen, not only in this series, but it was one of the most competitive games that we've seen throughout the entire first round of the playoffs. And I think it could be very similar in this regard, going into game six. I think that Steph, Clay, these guys are going to have to step up and and knock down some big shots for Golden State. Obviously, they're going to have to get good contributions from Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Jordan Poole. And then, you know, you you look at the Kings. It's like I said, you know, can De'Aaron Fox and some of the role players be able to step up and, and make this a game and make it competitive? i just banking on the fact that I think that Golden State... I'm banking on their playoff experience to show up here. And I think even though I think the Kings could definitely force a game seven, I think they're going to fall a little bit short in this one. And unfortunately they will be eliminated from the playoffs. But you know, when it comes to Golden State, I think they will advance. And just one more point that I'll make about the Kings, because I I don't want to lose this in translation. Just because I have the Kings losing game six, this team in Sacramento is on an upward trajectory where this team could take over the Western Conference in a couple years from now. De'Aaron Fox is only 24 years old. They have some good players at their disposal right now. And I think give the Kings a little bit more time 
and they could potentially be one of the best teams, not only in the Western Conference, but in the NBA. I think they're very close, just a couple years away. And I think this loss in game six, which is something that I'm projecting here, I think this could serve them well in the long run. I think there are going to be some, there's going to be some growing pains associated with the Kings over the next couple of years when it comes to their playoff experience. This will be one of them, but I think they will use this growing pain in losing this game potentially to serve them better in the future. That's just how I see it. The series, man, I I can't say anything more about it. It's It's been entertaining, game in, game out, wire to wire. I mean, shot for shot, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, uh, Demonis Sabonis, Draymond Green even. I mean, and the Warriors find a way to spring back three in a row. I, I don't, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I didn't see it coming, but it was just really hard to grasp after Sacramento jumped out to such an aggressive 2-0 lead. Uh, De'Aaron Fox looked unguardable. Demonis Sabonis looked like he got in the head of Draymond Green, obviously, with the suspension for Game 3. Um, uh, Davion Mitchell was really getting in Stephen Curry to make his life a living hell defensively. And then, of course... Uh, when you talk about Keegan Murray going off in Game 4 for 23 points, you really expected the rookie to have a bigger role. Uh, Kevin Herter was having a slow start. He hit a couple of shots later in the game in Game 5, and he just couldn't get it going. I want to acknowledge, though, the second-half adjustment that Steve Kerr made of putting Draymond Green on De'Aaron Fox, who was going into the second half, if I'm not mistaken. I think he had either 16 or 18 points. And for him to only score six more points in that second half, to end up 9 of 25 when he was cooking and looked like he could not miss in that first half is huge. Malik Monk had to take over. I think he had about 13 or 14 points in the fourth quarter. It was absolutely incredible. It looked like the refs were kind of getting involved to where they were giving Sacramento some ticky-tack fouls. Golden State was making some mental errors with their turnovers. It really looked like they were going to fall apart. And then Stephen Curry, man, Wardell Curry the third or whatever the hell his name Jesus Christ. He hit some big timely shots. And then the end one to solidify with under a minute to go, where he kind of dribbled around in a circle, stops, pivots, comes back, right hook, layup, and one. It, you can't ask for anything better. If Clay Thompson wasn't in foul trouble, I think he would have had 30, 35 points because he was taken out of his rhythm a couple of times to where he came back in, shot himself back into it, and still found a way to, to put up some good numbers. Kavon Looney, man, he does not get enough credit just because you don't score does not mean it's not important. I believe he had 20, he had 22 rebounds, seven offensive. Absolutely sensational in, in that regard. Everybody contributed. Draymond had his best night probably of the season. Goes 8 of 10 from the field with 21 points, seven assists, four steals, and a block. Absolutely sensational. Jordan Poole didn't have the most efficient night from the field. He probably had the weakest link. I mean, he gives him 10 with 4 of 11 or 4 of 12 from the field. Like I said, Clay Thompson had a great night with 25. Steph goes for 31. Wiggins had 20. Everybody did what they needed to do. I will say, once again, Golden State has an issue turning the ball over late in games. I believe they had about four or five turnovers in that fourth quarter alone to where everybody was kind of looking at them like, you really about to give Sacramento this win? And they found a way to hold on, thank goodness. But I will pay attention. If Golden State, not, not necessarily gets cocky, but if they continue to be careless, Sacramento's backs are against the wall. They have nothing to lose. They're going to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at Golden State. Whether that is going to be a little bit more aggression on defense, whether that is going to be limiting them and trying to run them off the three-point line, I have no idea. But 
Don't be surprised if Sacramento comes out and takes game six because they know this team, if they get to a hot start, they may run away with it. Golden State is known for having not only big third quarters, but in general, when they start hitting from behind the arc, not many teams can catch up. So just to be mindful, Klay Thompson ended the game in a pretty good stretch. I wouldn't be surprised if we see game six Klay for the first time since the 2019 NBA Finals. He had a couple of games last year in the postseason, but I'm expecting a massive 30-plus point game from Klay Thompson in this game. And I think I agree with Kyle. Golden State takes this in six and moves on to the second round of the NBA playoffs. And honestly, even though I have Golden State winning this game, I wouldn't be opposed to a game seven. I would love a game no. seven. What? With the potential of Sacramento pulling off their first playoff series win in God knows how long. 20 some years, maybe. I don't I, know. And I will say, just you know, to, to put the hypothetical out there, imagine that environment. Is it? Is it the Golden One Arena in Sacramento? I have I no idea that, what it's I, called. I, I think that's the name of the arena. The Golden One Center. It's the Golden One Center. That's what it's called. Uh, I, I have the game pulled up, and it says the uh, the arena below the, the stat line. But with the potential of lighting the beam, which has been the internet sensation in the NBA this year, I'm telling you that the energy that that crowd could potentially bring in a Game 7 environment would be electric. I would have lost my mind if Draymond would have lit the beam. Like, if he would have ran to the button and pressed the I would, bro, I would have died. It would have been a suspension, probably, or some stupid thing, but knowing the way that the NBA... He's already missed one game. It is what it is, but alas, we do have one more segment, guys. It's a little late on our half. Um, I I do want to bring up one more thing before... Just just one more NFL draft point. And, And just quick thoughts on this one. Will Levis did not get drafted in the first round. I don't get how that did not happen. I'm not going to lie to you. With all the hype that had happened and all the camps and discussions and the rumors, very surprised. I, yeah, I was about to ask, like, like how shocked are you at that? Because that's that's a pretty big development, bro. That was going to be the, the, there. There was so many conversations that there were 100 percent going to be four quarterbacks taken off the board in the first round, and for Anthony Richardson to go ahead of him, even though Will Levis has a bigger resume. I don't get it. Like I said in my point with Anthony going to Indianapolis, for teams that need a quarterback of the future to pass up, I mean, I I, I can't comprehend it. I'm not going to pretend like I get it, but I'm just, I'm trying to figure out where teams are thinking because I'm pretty sure I can look at a couple of teams here and think, you know what, they, they, they maybe, use a quarterback. maybe you could use a quarterback. Not necessarily somebody definitively like, Oh yeah, that's the guy. But for people to pass it up and just kind of leave it, I I don't know. I don't comprehend what happened. I mean, Will Levis has been the projected best player on the board for basically two and a half hours. And he never got taken. I I can't understand it. I don't really comprehend. I mean, I'm I'm trying to find the board because of course ESPN has this laid out so weird. I could have definitely seen Tennessee taking him. I could have seen Green Bay taking him. I could have seen the Commanders taking him. I could have seen the Seahawks taking him to learn behind Geno. I definitely could have seen the Vikings taking him as a backup behind Kirk Cousins. I could have definitely seen New Orleans taking him as a backup to Derek Carr. 
there are teams that are in desperate need. I mean, even the Giants at some point, maybe not a first-round pick, but I'm saying, like, if Daniel Jones doesn't pan out, I know he just got the contract. But Even the Bucks. Somebody. Maybe not the Giants, actually. I forgot he just got that super big contract, so probably not him. But there are definitely teams that could have 100% used a younger, strong-armed quarterback like him, despite him having mayonnaise in his coffee and eating a whole banana with the peel. Yeah, he's I, I talented. Think, I, I think if people are using that excuse uh, for his uh, for his draft stock going down, I think they're kind of crazy because he'd have to apply the same standard for Patrick Mahomes putting ketchup on everything. Like I, I don't know anybody that eats steak with ketchup, but apparently Patrick does. But that Whatever. didn't imp- that didn't impact his draft stock. So it's like, dude, we're talking it, about mayonnaise out the yeah, tub in yeah, coffee. It, yeah, it, it it's a, it's a little weird. It's, it's a little weird, but... I hate mayo, so that's, now, that's just me. I, weird. It, but it's weird because you would have been... Speaking from you know, your perspective, being an indie fan, you would have rolled with Will yeah. over Anthony Richardson every day of the week. Is it a little mm-hmm. bit discouraging knowing that Will wasn't picked at all in the first round because every team that had an opportunity to pick up a quarterback. Are you referring to maybe me feeling more comfortable, like to be more confident in the pick? Like, see, he didn't even go in the first round. Kind of. Maybe there's like, like, are you like, would you be a little bit discouraged by that, that teams had an opportunity to pick him up, but decided to not. And even though the Indy had the opportunity to, they decided to roll with Anthony Richardson, even though that you had the idea of rolling with Will more than Anthony. You understand where I mean, I'm coming from with this? Maybe, but there's six rounds to go. I mean, if he ends up being a six-round draft pick, well, we've seen six-round quarterbacks, fifth-round, seventh-round quarterbacks do it. It doesn't matter now. I mean, the hype was the first round. We thought that he had the hype, the talent to do it. If he ends up going to one of the teams I just listed anyway, it, it's still going to be a definitive open conversation. I mean, I don't think he starts right away. Obviously, first-round picks are usually the ones that you want to insert immediately. But in some of those camps, like Washington and a couple of other teams, that might be an open quarterback conversation. I mean, if he goes to Tampa later, he's going to compete with Trask. He's going to compete with Baker. I mean, I don't know how much he's really going to compete with Kyle Trask because I don't think he has the opportunity to really take anything from anybody because he hasn't had experience. But if he were to go and uh, sit in uh, Seattle, Geno Smith just signed a three-year deal over there. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Geno, God forbid, knock on wood, gets hurt. He gets some time. If Geno were to struggle, maybe he gets some time. It just it depends on the situation and the fit. But him not going in the first round, to me, I wouldn't say it's alarming. It's more confusing because of the hype that went into the last two, three months. His combine was very well. His individual workouts went well. His interviews went well. I thought that he was 100% a first-year quarterback. If Anthony Richardson in a year and a half jumped into the top five because of pure athleticism, the quarterback that actually has the numbers to support it in a good and healthy season and playing through an injury with good character, playing in the SEC, I could have swore that he was 100% going to at least be somewhere in the top 15 picks, but here we are. You know, I don't know how he personally feels about not being picked in the first round. Probably definitely discouraged. And uh, I guess just contractually speaking, he lost out on money. The first round. He lost out on money. There's no doubt about that. But who yeah, knows? He lost that, the fifth-year option as well. Th- that could add some fuel to the fire. Maybe that he didn't get picked in the first round. It gets picked up by a team in the second round. That could definitely add a chip onto somebody's shoulder. So we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, still very surprising that Will did not get picked up in the first round. And, uh, you know, 
I he would he would definitely be picked up in the second day of the draft. Oh yeah, I don't. On, see, if, I, if he if he, if he goes tight. if he goes on day three, something had to have happened. There's so, got to be something. some kind of room a hidden injury. There's no something. way you're hyped to be a top five pick for two three months straight to not get drafted until day three. Something's up. Like a guarantee number one pick, not number one pick, a first round pick, guarantee first round pick. Yeah, it's, it's weird. So, some 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 in the air. Something, something's a mess. Something's definitely up if you drop that. Drop that far. That would be crazy. As Mermaid Man would say, there is evil afoot. So I, I, I will. I had, I, had, I had to quote. I had to quote my dog, Mermaid Man. Shout out to Barnacle Boy. Um, moving on to the NHL. The playoffs are here. Kyle's team went down three-one relatively early in the series. They fought back. And they managed to force the game six, coming back to Tampa. So, Kyle, I got to ask, what's going on with your Lightning? And can they find a way to make this comeback? Well, like Kev said, the Lightning were able to save off elimination in game five five against the Toronto Maple Leafs, beating them by the score of four to two. And when I was watching this game, one of the things that I was paying attention to throughout the entire course of the game would be whether or not that the Lightning's defense would be able to hold up against Toronto. And when you look back at games three and four, these games took place in Tampa. Tampa was leading in those games. In game four, they were up four to one in the third period and ended up giving up three goals in the third period to tie the game at four goals apiece. Game ends up going into overtime and Toronto scores the game winning goal to put them up three one. So going into game five, if Tampa's defense was not going to hold up, then they were definitely going to get eliminated. Fortunately for them, that didn't happen. Tampa's offense showed up. They put four goals on the board, and they only gave up two goals uh, in this game. They they gave up one uh, early on in the first period. Uh, they held it down in the second, and then they gave up another goal in the third period when Toronto had pulled their goalie out of net, and there was a six-on-five. But, you know, one of the things that I could look back to in a positive way uh, for the Lightning was that they were the aggressor in this team. And honestly, when your back is up against the wall, you got to leave you got to leave everything out there on the ice because, you know, you lose this game. You know, you pretty much head back to Tampa and you're cleaning out your locker the next day. So I like the fact that they were going toe to toe with the Maple Leafs early on in the first period, ended up going one one at the first intermission. Then they were able to get a second goal uh, in the second period to put them up two to one. And then they were up three to one, got an insurance goal to put them up three to one. And then at that point, they're pretty much just playing defense uh, against Toronto, who is basically throwing everything that they can at Vasilevsky. And I will say, uh, Andre Vasilevsky definitely had a better performance in this game, even though that he did give up two goals. The second one was on a rebound. You know, unfortunately, rebounds just kind of come with the territory. If a guy's in the right position for that rebound, it's pretty much going to go in nine times out of ten uh, if the goalie's not able to extend his leg out to be able to block uh, the rebound shot. But nonetheless, I thought that the Lightning's overall defense was improved in this game because when you look back at the last couple games that they've lost, there was a three-game stretch where they lost three in a row. In game two, they gave up seven goals. In I believe in game three, let me pull it up here. Just, I want to make sure that I have the uh, the total right. 
In game three, they gave up four. They lost that one in overtime as well. They were up three to two in the third period, ended up losing that one uh, in overtime uh, based off of that game going to overtime based on the game time going the third period. And then very similar in game four, you're up four to one and you give up four unanswered goals. And in both of those games, in games three and four, you're on your home ice and you give up these leads. It's very uncharacteristic of Tampa to be able to do that because over the last couple of years, Tampa has constantly been a Stanley Cup finals team. You know, they've gone to three straight Stanley Cups. Uh, they lost last year, but they won two in a row prior to that. And, you know, the fact that the Maple Leafs were putting them on their heels in this game five, you really got to give a lot of credit to Toronto for being able to execute at a high level and, and really focus on one of the weaknesses with Tampa Bay as a whole. And that is their defense. Vasilevsky has not been solid this series. Their defense has not been as strong as it has in years past. And that's despite the fact that the Lightning have been scoring goals in this series. Outside of game two, they've scored four or more goals in four out of the five games. So the offense is not the issue here. It's just the defense. And when you look at the Maple Leafs, you know, through games two through four, they scored 16 goals, seven in game two, four in game three, and five in game four. You know, if you're giving up 16 goals, I don't care how many goals you score, more than likely you're not going to win those games. But in game five, they were able to come back, regroup as a unit, and with game six uh, going down on Saturday night, we'll see whether or not that this Lightning team could be able to execute at a high level, be able to win game six to force a game seven. And, you know, when it comes to the Lightning, the Lightning have been in situations like this in the past. Obviously, being down 3-1 is not a situation you want to be in, especially in the first round, where, you know, when it comes to Tampa, the expectation is at least uh, a conference finals appearance, if not a Stanley Cup finals appearance. So they definitely have their work cut out for them. But at this point, the best thing you can tell them at this point is you have to attack each game one at a time. And we'll see whether or not that they could be able to find a way to rally to win this game six at home back in Tampa. And then we'll see whether or not they can force a game seven. Either way, um, this series has been very competitive. I've enjoyed watching this series since it started. And uh, I'll definitely be paying attention to what we see in game six when it goes down on Saturday night. Well said. Um, I ain't watch a lick of hockey. I'm guilty of it. The Rangers went up 2-0 against the Devils. Now Lost they're down 3-2. Lost 3-straight. I, I turned on the Ranger game. I want to say I turned on game three for about two minutes. <laughs> Couldn't do it. I was just like, I'm not in it. I don't care. I'm just, you know. You got to give it a chance. I, I, but I've, I, the thing is, I've watched playoff hockey before. I don't know if I just caught it on a lull where there was just a lot of just like passing and passing and passing and passing and passing and passing. No shot attempts on goal. Like it was just kind of like one of those like, damn, I caught a real boring sequence. But I was also like tired. I had just woken up. It was one of those days where like you wake up from a nap and you're just like, I'll put this on. And then it wasn't. Anyway, I ended up watching anime. But the point of the matter is, I'm just not locked in with hockey lately. It just. Besides, all the hockey games are scheduled and all the NBA games are scheduled, so it's very hard to pick. Then you got some Yankee games in there as well, and you're just like... Priorities, you, know you, you got some yeah, options there. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it, it's just not for mm. me. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I haven't watched hockey before. Like I said, I just... I don't know. Lately, I have been not too interested. But guys, 
that about wraps it up for the episode. Um, we are working as hard as we can, doing everything that we need to do. We're having a good time. The playoffs are here for a multitude of sports, and we just wanted to let you know that we are forever grateful for the support that we've received. We've gone through our little struggle on YouTube. We're, we're, we're slowly climbing back in. So, you know, we're grateful for, again, to, to at least be back in the algorithm for now. Got, we, but, got uh, we, got, we got something, though. On our, did you notice on our Twitter page? Oh, yes, yes. We are, uh, we are now verified on Twitter. So follow us on Twitter. Mark. We got our little blue check mark for those of you that are unaware or that follow us on Twitter. Just shoot us a follow, shoot us a comment, a like, a retweet, whatever you can. But uh, Instagram is moving. We're almost at 800 followers in less than six months. It's absolutely kind of incredible how fast that that platform has grown. Um, YouTube, we are almost at 1,750 subscribers. So, again, we're making moves. We're grateful for however many people have followed and watched and, and subscribed and commented, whatever the case may be. Support wherever it's come from. Just we want you guys to know we're, we're grateful. And we're going to continue to, to be making this content as far as we can and as long as we can. So, um, that's everything I have for you guys. So we'll be talking again to you on Sunday. Kyle, wrap us up, buddy. I got really nothing more to add other than, you know, just appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, whether that's watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the audio platforms, we definitely appreciate you guys tuning in. Like Kev said, uh, we'll have plenty of content rolling out for you guys over the next couple of days. And we'll be back here, uh, for a Sunday night record and a Monday morning release until then take it easy you guys and have a nice weekend. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.